Hello and welcome back to the Agents of Change in Environmental Justice podcast. I, of course, am your host, Brian Binkowski, Senior Editor at Environmental Health News and the Editor of Agents of Change. We're brought to you by the George Washington Milken Institute School of Public Health and Environmental Health News at ehn.org. Exciting times at Agents of Change, eh? We are we are rolling along. Our most recent essay from Dr. Reagan Patterson looked at the harm from highways on black communities and how maybe we should look at taking a few of these highways down. As a passionate bicycle rider, her words struck a personal chord with me. It's a great piece, and check it out at ehn.org under our special projects tab. All right, let's just get right to it today. I am talking to Dr. Reginald Tucker Seeley an assistant professor of gerontology and the Edward L. Schneider Chair in Gerontology at USC. Reginald spoke to our Agents of Change fellows about science and policy. He is a giant in his field, and I just had to have him on the podcast. We talk about his work on teasing out what impacts our health beyond lifestyle choices, how racism is a threat to public health, and how his time in D.C. as a Robert Wood Johnson Health Policy Fellow completely reshaped how he thinks about incorporating science into policy. Enjoy. Well, now I am very excited to be joined by Dr. Reginald Tucker Seeley. Reggie, how are you? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing excellent. And where are you today? Where are you coming at us from? I'm in Los Angeles, California. Awesome. Awesome. So, Reggie, I really appreciate you being here today. And um, before we get into some of your current work, I wanted to to take a step back a little bit. And I I saw that your undergraduate training was in accounting, which kind of uh, threw me for a loop. So I was wondering what got you interested in public health? Yeah, so actually, um, in between accounting and public health, um, I got a master's in counseling and family therapy. Um, another detour. Um, actually, um, I, when I was in my master's program, I was working on a master's thesis. And for that project, um, I was reading papers on social determinants of health and the biopsychosocial approach to health. Um, and I realized these were terms that I, I had never heard, but but were so clearly um, articulating what I was interested in. And one of the articles was written by uh, Dr. Norman Anderson, who was at the Harvard School of Public Health at the time. And I, I was a first-generation college student, first-generation grad student. So I had no idea that schools of public health existed and that social and behavioral departments within schools of public health existed. So when I read um, the papers on social determinants of health and the biopsychosocial approaches to health, um, I found Dr. Anderson and then explored um, graduate programs at at schools of public health, and then uh, just applied to the programs that had um, social and behavioral sciences um, in them. And I got into um, Harvard and Columbia, and I chose um, Harvard, and and then I stayed at the Harvard School of Public Health from master student to assistant professor. You mentioned social determinants of health, and another and, and another term there that I missed. I think it was. Bio- the biopsychosocial approach to uh, approaches to health. So this notion that our health is not only influenced by our biology, but also by our you know psychology and our social environment, and the integration of of, of all of those together to explore um, explore our health outcomes. Um, also during that period, 
Um, I was doing my clinical internship at Washington University in their student health and counseling service. And this was in the early 2000s. And they had such a great approach to the mental health of their students. So they had their physicians, the psychiatrist, and the mental health counselors. We were all in one location. And I thought that was such a, a, um, a great approach. And then it, it sort of helped to facilitate my thinking around um, um, approaches to health that not only thought about our physical health, but our mental health and our social environments. You mentioned when you saw these terms that, that this was what you wanted to do, even if you didn't know what the terms meant. And I'm wondering if that passion grew from uh, was just, just kind of a, a, an interest you had innate or was this something that something from childhood or upbringing? Well, yeah. So I think in undergrad um, to, to mental health and, and that process consisted of pulling out my undergraduate transcript and, and, and making two lists courses I loved and courses I hated and in the courses I hated column, tax accounting, cost accounting, all of my accounting courses. And the cost of, and the classes that I loved were all of my social and behavioral science courses. But I recall at the time as a first-gen college student, I had no idea what someone who liked those kinds of courses did for work. And so um, my I, I attended the University of Tulsa in Oklahoma uh, for undergrad, and it's a lib- small liberal arts college with a really great business school. And we had great, you know, um, job placements. I knew what I was going to do after college. And actually, I landed a great job after college in accounting. Um, I worked in the field for about five years um, and, and and great jobs, but they were just not uh, things I wanted to do. And I really wasn't passionate about them. So perhaps there's a little overlap this question with, with what you've gone over so far, but I've been asking all the fellows in our program, uh, what, what's a defining moment that shaped your identity? Hmm. Identity as a an individual, as a scholar, as personal, personal or professional. Um, uh, hmm, that's a really good question. I think I think there there have been several moments that have been you know um, uh, defining moments for me. I think um, making the decision to leave accounting was was a really big decision. Um, deciding to enter mental health, um, realizing that you know that wasn't the thing. Um, and then at at thirty, I, I was embarking on a on a third career. So I think that that was defining. Um, yeah, I think I've, I've I've had so many moments. I think the the thing that that's been helpful across those moments is just you know not being scared to make these those big leaps. Was there any mentors coming up through? Oh, of course, of, of of course. Um, you know, uh, professional and and personal. Um, I had a great mentor when I was at, or several great mentors when I was at the the Harvard School of Public Health, that um, really introduced me to this notion of uh, a team based approach to mentoring. So you know, so this notion that like you might have a mentor that helps you with your actual work. You might have a mentor that helps you navigate your career. You may have a mentor that helps you with work-life balance, you know, trying to think about the various roles in which you need mentorship and then finding individuals to, to um, fulfill those roles and not expecting one person, you know, to fulfill all the other mentoring um, needs that you might have. So we've mentioned a couple times the social determinants of health, and I know this plays a big part in your, your current work. Yep. Can you give us some examples? I, I know I looked, uh, uh, you know, maybe some neighborhood level environmental impacts yeah. uh, that impact people's health sure. versus the individual level and social and economic factors. 
Yeah. So in some of my um, some of my earlier work um, uh, uh, regarding the neighborhood level, um, one of the things I was really interested in is, you know, how do people perceive their neighborhood environment? And so we explored the association between neighbor perceived neighborhood safety and physical activity behavior among older adults. Um, and, and what we found was that their perception of their safety um, was associated with the, their level of physical activity. And and that didn't matter. Um if they were high socioeconomic status or low socioeconomic status. So meaning, because socioeconomic status is a really good predictor of the the type of neighborhood you live in. So if you have more socioeconomic resources, meaning more financial resources, higher education, you're going to likely be in a neighborhood that provides a lot more resources. That's going to be, the perception is that it's going to be safer. It's going to be free from things like litter, graffiti, and, and those kinds of things. And so what we found is that regardless of socioeconomic status, the perceived safety was important in predicting um, whether or not people, uh, engage, older adults, um, engaged in physical activity. Um, and so, so it's important to think about sort of not only the resources that you have, but how you perceive the the environment, the environment uh, um, um, around you. Um, I've also done some work looking at um, neighborhood resources. So what do people have available to them in their neighborhoods? Um, and one of the things we found in some of that work is that in neighborhoods that are pr- predominantly um, racial and ethnic minorities, that those neighborhoods have more, have a higher density of fast food restaurants. And so then that impacts the kinds of food choices that people can make based on the kinds of things that they that they have around them. That leads me into my next question. You pretty recently had a a conversation with a colleague. It was called How Racism is a Threat to Public Mm -hmm. Health. And can you talk a little bit about, you know, especially right now where we're at in the U.S., uh, hate hate seems uh, de rigueur right now. Um, And I wonder if you could talk about how this translates into poorer health outcomes for black and brown people when there's racism and hate uh, kind of out in the open or even if it's insidious often use when I give talks about about um, um, racial and ethnic disparities is from um, um, Sir Jeffrey Vickers, where he talks about um, this notion that that public health is really guided by sort of redefining things as intolerable from from things that are um, a given to the intolerable. And I think for too long we have focused we we see these health disparities as a given, sort of differences in health as as a given, and we need to move them to this point to where they are intolerable. We we no longer tolerate these differences, these large differences in um, um, health and healthcare related outcomes by by race. I think the challenge to that is the is is racism is sort of the 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 different sort of the different experiences, the different level of socioeconomic resources, and and how racial and ethnic groups have been sorted really based on histories of, or a history of social policy that has sorted racial and ethnic minorities into certain neighborhoods, into into specific jobs that then lead to these differences in um, in health outcomes that, uh, that we see. So this spider webs into all kinds of different um, mm. systems and, and, and cultural institutions. This goes pretty deep, but I'm wondering if you have kind of specific suggestions or, or prescriptions that you think kind of the public health field could do to to address some of these in the more immediate. Yeah. So um, I think given the the events of of last summer, um, the 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 deaths of George Floyd and Breonna T- Taylor that 
that um that really galvanized people to to start to talk more about sy- systemic racism and i think since i've been you know sort of in public health this this feels like the longest sustained conversation that's been both i mean i think we we've continued to talk about it in public health but it seems like we are sort of engaging with with larger uh, uh larger communities um and so during this period you know we're we're seeing so many organizations come out with statements which is which is great but i think we have to move past the statements and to the action and so it's great to be against racism but what how are the behaviors of your organization anti-racist what are you doing to tear down the the um uh, the barriers to systemic racism the things that have as i mentioned earlier sort of sorted groups into you know respective places and and positions in the in the social hierarchy so so what what can organizations do? What can individuals do? I think it requires a level of um, um, the first step is introspection, sort of thinking about, you know, what have have you done as an individual? What has the organization done that has um, um, uh, perpetuated systemic racism within your respective context? And then, you know, making an effort to be anti-racist, to, to no longer engage in either those, those behaviors or those practices um, um, from, from your organization. And to ensure that um, as decisions are being made from, from an organizational perspective, that racial and ethnic minority folks are at the decision-making table. Um, there's a there's a saying in um, I spent some time in Washington D.C. as a health policy fellow, and there's a saying there that if if you aren't at the table, then you're on the menu. And so it's I think it's important for the people who have been historically marginalized to be at the decision making table as those structures around systems are being dismantled. You mentioned your work as a policy fellow, and this uh, this before we get into that, um, I'm wondering if your work now. So if you if you do some research on a neighborhood and you you notice um, the the research you mentioned before maybe there are there are not mental health uh, resources maybe there aren't there are green spaces whatever that is yeah. do you or colleagues is there kind of the next step of like well we need to engage city planners we need to engage um, uh, community leaders um, is that mm. something you're, you're trying to actively do. Um. Uh, to be honest, that's not something that we have been historically trained to do in public health programs, which I think is something that that we need to do a better job of. So, um, so I will say that um, the, the the best part of that process should be not that we engage with those policymakers at the end of our study, but that we've been having conversations with those policymakers at the all along. So that we are not, you know, just introducing them to our findings and assuming that our findings are going to be priorities for them. And so if we have included folks in the community and policymakers in the conversation from the beginning of the research projects, I think that facilitates change much better than saying, hey, we have these research results. Are you interested in them? Here's a copy of, um, of our paper. So your work as a, as a health policy fellow with the Robert Wood Johnson uh, Foundation what, what was that experience like? What did you learn? Did it give you different oh. insight on science and research in the policymaking arena? Things that, that I quickly realized when I got there was, was um, I, I thought I knew something about health policy. I knew like so little <laughs> about how big this enterprise really is of, of, of health policy. Um, and so that was, you know, one of the, one of the first um, um, things, things I learned. Um, 
And then um, after those three months, you're, you're placed in either an executive branch or um, a, a congressional branch office. Um, all this, um, my cohort has six fellows and we all were placed, we all chose uh, a congressional uh, placements in the 2017-2018 um, academic year. And my placement was in Senator Dianne Feinstein's office working with her um, health policy team. And so um, one of the things that, that, that I learned was, or one of the many, many, many things that, that I learned was that... Um, Policymakers, um, primarily you know members of Congress, have so many issues that that they're juggling. Um, I would sit in on on staff meetings and I would just watch Senator Feinstein go from issue to issue to issue, from issues related to defense, related to healthcare, related to you know housing and education and and all you know. And I and for those of us that are researchers, we have our area, and so and we take our area to the policymaker and assuming that they're going to care about that that issue. When they're juggling all of those other things, and so I think um, I I realize that we as academics have to do a better job at figuring out how to get policymaker attention when they have so many other things that they're paying attention to. And what are some of those tools or, or tips that you brought home? Yeah, so so first thinking about um, what are the priorities of the policymaker, and they list those priorities on their websites. I mean, they they tell you what they're interested in. And so trying to align what you do with policymakers that are interested is, 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 is one of the first things to do. The other is establishing a relationship with the staff member. So I would, um, um, many of the listeners may be familiar with um, Capitol Hill days. If you're a member of a professional organization, you go to the Hill, you talk about, you know, what, what your, um, what your organization does and, 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 and what your issues are. And many people may think that Hill visit is the end. And actually, that Hill visit should be the beginning. It's the beginning of the establishing a relationship with that staff member so that they know who you are, they, they know, you know what, what your organization does, um, and they're, and they're familiar, familiar with that work. So that in the event that something comes up that they're working on, your organization is one of the first that they think about uh, uh, to reach out to. Um, the, the third thing is, I, you know, your organization might be the one that they reach out to, but they're going to reach out to you and they're going to need something really quickly. <laughs> so the pace of Washington was something else that was unlike anything I'd ever seen because issues just keep come, they come up so fast and you have to, you know, sort of get up to speed on that topic and be ready to write talking points for the, for the, for the, um, um, for the policymaker, you know, that day or the, or, or the next day. And it might be something you know a lot about, or it might be something you know very little about um, initially. So, um, so just being prepared for that pace, um, both from the, from the staff member side, but, but both from um, the side of the, um, of the, of the researcher, if you're asked to provide information. It's funny you mentioned the pace because when I go to journalism conferences and talk to my DC friends who, who work there, I always tell them, we do not have the same profession. What you do and what I do, <laughs> I'm up here in the in the sticks. Um, yeah. It is just a radically different world. W- were there any specific bills or, or a piece of legislation that you worked on with? Uh... Um, so so when I was there, um, the, Democ- the Democrats were in the minority. So, you know, the, um, the other thing, you know, you learn about how Congress works and um, – the Republicans were in the majority, so it was really difficult for any um, um, Democrats to, to put any bills forward. So, so I we I worked on a lot of priority areas for uh, for Senator Feinstein, but not on any um, um, specific um, legislation. Um, 
not on any specific legislation that actually made it to the floor. Um, um, but we we did actually work on you know sending letters to um, uh, to um, executive branch folks. So one of the things that I was really proud of is that we we worked on uh, a letter to NIH focused on uh, increasing diversity in clinical trials. That Senator Feinstein was really interested in in ensuring that NIH um, did a much better job of um, uh, focusing on that. Would you have recommendations for, for, for up-and-coming scholars who want to see their research turned into change? They want to see it turned into policy change and good. But, you know, a lot of, let's be honest, a lot of universities, that's still not a, a, something that's incentivized. You know, you have to publish um, yep. in research journals. You know, any advice for someone who wants to really do research but also ter- have it turn into to action? Yeah, I think sort of thinking about at what level you're interested in turning it into policy. I think it's really hard to get it, you know, into federal level policy, but but maybe local policy is a is a place where you could you could have a bigger impact, and those people are closer to you. Um, and so, and but you're right in the academic environment, those things are not necessarily incentivized, and so I think the the academy is going to have to change in terms of. Um, what are we, you know, encouraging scholars to do in terms of um, in terms of dissemination? Because I think I think the the other challenge is the the pace of policy moves both quickly and slowly. So you know sometimes things move you know really fast, but to actually get legislation over the line can take years. And so um, you know again maybe looking locally to where to where change can 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 probably be a bit quicker and getting your research in the hands of local policymakers who might be interested in what you're working on um and then making sure that you you know try to keep some of those connections with um um legislators you know at the state and 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 federal level as well you mentioned a broader uh recognition of racial disparities in public health i'm wondering if there's other things that are giving you hope and optimism that you're seeing in the field right now? Um, I think, I think that's the big, that's the big one, you know, sort of the, the attention to, to, um, to racial and ethnic disparities we saw with the pandemic. I think for many of us who, you know, work in this space, the, the stark disparities that we saw from exposure to, um, to, to access to treatment, to access to the vaccine, sort of that, that whole trajectory was, was less surprising, you know, to, to those of us who, who've worked in this space. But the fact that we're seeing more people talk about it is, is encouraging. Um, and to, to see funders talking about not only describing these differences, but how do we address the systems that created these differences? So I'm starting to see, you know, a lot of funding announcements related to addressing structural racism, the structures that led to the differences that we see. So not only, you know, are we, you know, just describing these differences across groups, but we're actually hopefully now looking for solutions. When COVID hit, we had a couple of the Agents of Change essays ready to go. Um, and we were scared that they were going to get buried in this COVID news. Mm-hmm. And then they came out and they were speaking to the topics you're talking about, representation in research. Uh, food. One was about food access um, and farming in Black communities. And these were some of the most widely read stories I've seen since mm-hmm. I've been editor. And I think mm-hmm. it was this recognition among people that there's just this intertwining of all these issues. Um, and COVID kind of brought that to the surface, um, so to speak. Is there anything you're you're not working on, but you, you hope to work on either soon or down the road? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that that I um, 
sort of back to my my Washington D.C. experience is that I learned so much about the legislative process, um, sort of how things go from an idea that a policymaker just has, how that idea moves through the office, how that idea moves through the congressional body to legislation to to uh, to law, and I'm really interested in um, what are the facilitators and barriers to legislation to address um, health disparities. Um, there, there's been a couple of um, um, pieces of legislation introduced to um, related to this, but they've just been introduced and they haven't really moved moved forward. And so I'm I'm really interested in in gaining a better understanding of that process of what are some of the barriers to moving that that kind of legislation that that legislation forward, um, specifically legislation that is um, explicit about its attention to those differences. I think one of the things that um, that's, that's sometimes said in, in in policy circles is that you know a rising tide lifts all boats, but I don't necessarily think that a rising tide that all boats are prepared to be lift are as prepared to be lifted. So you know, there's all these sayings about you know we're we're in the same storm but not in the same boat, sort of you know all of those those kinds of sayings. So I think you know recognizing that that we need sort of general population policies, you know, to improve the health and well-being of our, of our general population. But we also need very targeted policies that address the historical and the systemic racism that, that again, has sorted people by race into certain neighborhoods, certain places, certain jobs, and certain positions in, within our social hierarchy. On the communication front, you mentioned, you know, one page kind of distilled down research. Are there any other tools? Uh, I, I know a lot of, you know, Dr. Amizota, my, my colleague here is doing a lot of uh, Twitter. You know, she's, she's having the agents use a lot of social media platforms to try to get their message out, get their voice heard a little bit. Mm-hmm. wondering if you, if you use social media or other yes. kind of mediums to get, to get your message out. Um, I do. So I so I have a Twitter account um, that uh, that I use, and also um, I'm engaging with undergrad students um, on my campus. So I'm not the best at things like Instagram and all of those other types of, of tools. And so um, I have an undergrad student um, in the lab that's helping me with with communication. So he created an Instagram account um, for for our lab um, and created some infographics that you know introduces the staff, and we're you know starting to work on ways in which we can summarize. Um, um, the findings from our studies that are in just like these single page um, um, documents to where people can just get, you know, either the, you know, the basic um, ideas from our papers and then maybe go, you know, read the full paper if they're, if they're interested. So, so I'm, I'm still learning, you know, how, how best to navigate, navigate social, social media. And hopefully the the undergrads can, can help me do that. Yeah. It's hard to keep up, eh? It, it it is. It's it's so many of them. I'm I'm still on Facebook, and I, and I, and I, and I hear that that's just for folks, you know, um, uh, my age and older. So, so yeah. So Reggie, this has been a lot of fun for me, and I have one last question that I've been asking sure. everybody, and that is the last book that you read for fun. The, oh, for fun. <laughs> that's an interesting one because yeah, I'm not. I'm. I just bought a book called The Sum of Us. Um, I, I think that's it's 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 by Heather McGee. So 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 uh, uh, correct the ti- uh, correct me if the if the title of it is, is incorrect. And I'm sorry, Heather McGee, for getting the title wrong. But but I've just read the introduction, and and she was writing it um, 
during um, Trump's um, sort of movement into into office, and that was actually when I was a health policy fellow, and she does work on on economic policy, and it perfectly described my experience in Washington. So I'm so I'm loving that book right now. Um, it's it, it's interesting. I think as an academic, our sort of fun and work books kind of <laughs> kind of blend together. Um, so yeah, so I so that so that's the book I'm I'm, I'm currently reading right now. Well, excellent. Reggie, thank you so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it. Uh, you're welcome. Glad to, happy to chat. All right. That is all for this week, folks. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Reggie. If you'd like to support this podcast, please visit ehn.org and click our big orange donate button. You cannot miss it. You can also find Agents of Change on Twitter and Instagram or at ehn.org under our special projects tab. And please follow us on Spotify, iTunes, or Stitcher, wherever you're getting your podcast. And you can listen to this and all past episodes. The Agents of Change podcast is written, recorded, and edited by me with outreach, scheduling, and support from the rest of the team. Ami Zoda, Summer Ahmad, Gwen Raniger, and Aaron Gomez. We'd love to hear from you. Email us at agentsofchangeineh at gmail.com with suggestions for the show, questions for the fellows, reviews, or just to chat. And sign up for our monthly Agents of Change newsletter at the program homepage, agentsofchangeineh.com. Thanks for joining us. We hope to keep these important conversations on diversity in science and health going. Join me next time when I speak with Dr. Reagan Patterson, Transportation Equity Research Fellow at the Congressional Black Caucus Foundation. We hope you have a great week, folks. We'll see you next time.